Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read the whole chapter, though we will only focus on the last few verses. Revelation chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her, her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Father in heaven, would you give life and light to our minds and our hearts, for your word is perfect and true. We pray for Christ's sake, amen. Tonight brings a close to this special season that the leadership of the church has requested of the body, a season in which we've fasted together, a season in which we've prayed together, a season in which even this day we have prayed together a lot. Uh, some, I suspect, it's perhaps maybe the longest actually you've sat and prayed in one go. Some of us an hour today, maybe more, I don't know. And I imagine for many of us in the room, it's been probably a, a unique experience, a learning experience, a growing experience. We've never had to do this in this individual church. And honestly, for discretionary reasons, we've tried to kind of leave it big picture as to what the needs are so that the body here would understand what and why we're trying to do. As we've looked over the last six months, six months in the life of this church. It's been marked by so many examples of brilliance and beauty and wonder and glory, and marked by destruction and grief and illness, and even this month, death. 
And the tension of those two things is a thing that the leadership of the church has felt deeply and really and truly. It's weird as being a pastor here for so long, it's so much like even my, it's like my, my life is so tied into the church. I feel those tensions in my soul and in my body in a way that's just weird to explain, unable to get away from them. And so we've gone to you and we've asked that you pray and pray that God would show his mighty power in our midst. Now, we haven't asked that you start praying that God would start showing his power in our midst. And the reason for that is very clear because it's not an issue of starting. He's been doing that all along. He's been doing that every month, every week, every day, it seems. At least as long as I've known this church. As the Lord continues to bless. I mean, just to think about the building that we're in. I always just, it's a marvel to me to build such a beautiful building in the middle of COVID and then fill the seats in the middle of COVID. The Lord has been blessing and is blessing and continues to bless. But as we've already prayed earlier, just the previous prayer, when the sheep see wolves, They flee to the shepherd for shelter under his staff, and we have seen that the evil one is not content to leave us alone any longer. You've had a prayer guide to help shape your thoughts, to shape your prayers even today for extended seasons of prayer, asking the Lord to give us his power in a deeper and richer and greater fashion. We might see victory over the world, that we might see victory over our flesh, that we might see victory over the devil in new and greater ways, and we might see us grow in gentleness and kindness, grow in charity and love, grow in modesty and hope, grow in holiness together. The interesting thing, I think, for probably many of us, at least this was my initial interaction with so many of you, is that as we started this season of prayer, uh, it showed us perhaps something we were a bit unexpected, uh, or not expecting to see. It showed us not our strength. It showed us not how rich and robust the church has been. It showed us not all of the glories and the graces, but instead it showed us our frailty, our weakness our limitation, that in something so simple as removing food for a season, it's displayed how absolutely fragile we are. This sermon really takes that idea and hopefully brings it to its logical end. This kind of fragility that we felt this month, the the neediness that we've felt this month, the brokenness that we've felt this month, perhaps the confusion, the isolation, even the darkness. 
Where does it all lead? So, of course, Brandon made fun of me for this today. We turn to the book of Revelation. Chapter 19, really, where read the whole chapter, what we have in this chapter is the end. It's the end of our prayers in some sense and things being hoped for. It's the end of our conflict as a thing being lived in. It's the end of really the church militant, the church hopeful, the church looking forward to things. It's the end of all that it is this way. As chapter 20 really moves in to life as it will be. Now, because of really the plague that is dispensationalism in this nation, you do have to give a little bit of a, uh, an explanation to how the book of Revelation works. Revelation is, as a book, largely a series of Old Testament illustrations woven together. Uh, it's the most Old Testament of all of the books in the New Testament. It has more references, it has more quotes, it has more allusions to the Old Testament than anywhere else. So when we read it, you don't read it literally, you don't read it even symbolically, you have to read it theologically to see what's being done in these texts in light of what God has been doing in the Old Testament. And we're only really going to look at verses 17 through 21 tonight, but do want to highlight just a little bit of what we've seen to get there as it is absolutely marvelous. The chapter begins with uh, an introduction, a a glimpse, a, a kind of pulling back of the curtain, so to speak, to look at the glory of heaven. It's really kind of hinting at what we've already seen in Isaiah just a few weeks ago in the sermon where we get a glimpse of the glory of God and what's happening there in verses one through five is that the entirety of the church victorious, those that have gone ahead, those that have died, the angels that are holy together, joined together, calling back and forth to each other the praises and the glory of God. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! In verse 6, there's a change, and now the scene change. Again, it's a theological scene change, and it switches really from just generic glory the presence of God now to particular glory as we have, in essence, the wedding. The wedding that we've been looking forward to for the entirety of the Bible, the wedding between God's people and He Himself. The wedding in which it's really spoken of as consummation, the uniting of God and His people in totality, in fullness, in greatness, in grandeur. Mentioning this just even last week, the wedding looks a little different as we have the parties reversed as we normally have them in the U.S., right? Here in the U.S., we have the groom and the groomsman waiting up front. We have the bride who comes in the back. Here, it's reversed. The bride and her attendants, this idea is all arrayed in beautiful white linen, 
Interestingly, probably is mixing metaphors, battle dress of some kind, but beautiful and brilliant and clean and white and pure. Until verse 11, when the groom shows up. And boy, does he make a statement. I mean, wow, does he make a statement. While the entirety of the bridal party is arrayed in white, in beautiful, glowing, brilliant white. You get the impression the doors open in the back and in comes the groom riding a horse into the building. That's a statement in its own right. Only he's not wearing white. He's wearing red, blood red. Armed for battle, clothed in brilliance and beauty, having regality on his head with royalty in his diadem having power and strength, majesty and grace, the Lord Jesus arrives. We could have probably more time than we have allotted tonight to work through verses 11 through 16, but for any other person who would have seen this, this would have been the most terrible thing you've ever seen, all while being the most beautiful. Because what arrives here in verses 11 through 16 is not the arrival of Jesus as this helpless little baby. It's not the arrival of Jesus as this poor carpenter's son. It's not the arrival of this Jesus who would be a homeless rabbi who would travel probably unclean, unwashed as he wandered through... um, the land of Israel with no place to lay his head. This is not the arrival of Jesus who would be betrayed by one of the 12 men he spent the most time investing in. This is not the arrival of the Jesus who would be betrayed by his own people and perish on the cross, giving up his own spirit because he's still in charge. This is not the Jesus who would remain under the power of death for a time. And interestingly, This is not the Jesus who is raised, but still hides his glory from his people. You see, that's what happens with the the risen Christ, not yet ascended. We see at the end of the Gospels and into the beginning of the book of Acts, he's raised, he's victorious, he's mighty in battle, he's mighty in power, he has conquered sin, he has conquered the grave, he has conquered all enemies, but still he hides his glory. Only in verses 11 through 16, (laughs) uh, that doesn't happen anymore. What we have here with the arrival of the groom is the most terrible and brilliant and wonderful and horrible thing in all of created history as the groom arrives in power. On his robe, verse 16, the blood robe, and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. He is the ruler. Until we get to verse 17. (laughs) Our text for tonight, which briefly, a couple of things I'd love for us to contemplate. 
And it's in some sense a scene change, actually, again. It's almost like we've gone from being inside the ceremony, inside the building where uh, the wedding is taking place, inside where the groom has come in on the horse for the wedding, fair enough, and the bride is up front, beautiful and lovely, but now in verse 17, it's like we've gone back outside into the parking lot. Maybe back outside into the courtyard. We're no longer in the worship service and the ceremony. Instead, outside. Standing in the sun, you have an angel who now begins to speak. The angels, the messengers of God, and now he begins to proclaim a message, and it's an invitation. He calls to the birds that fly directly overhead, which most of us are like, that's weird. Fair enough, actually, I get it. Calling to the birds is pretty strange. Got to do that actually this week. Go to a restaurant, got to see, or last week, got to see a bald-headed eagle flying around in Rock Hills, the weirdest thing on Dave Lau Boulevard. That's in essence what's taking place here. The angel goes to call to the birds, much like we were calling to the eagle, only here not so much perhaps to your birds of prey, but to the carrion birds. It's a call to the vultures. It's a call to those that eat the dead things, the buzzards. A call for them to be invited to their own feast. This is a direct reference from Ezekiel. It's, um, again, Old Testament being proclaimed in New Testament. And what it's kind of emphasizing in its invitation is the certainty of what will come. This is not the invitation that you get sometimes here in the South where somebody's like, hey, you want to go out? We're going to, you know, go get food. Maybe I'm not sure we might, we might not, and maybe we will. I don't know. This is not the invitation that sometimes we've all gotten at some point here where uh, you're like, hey, you know what? I'd love to go get a meal together. And what does the person say? Yeah, let's do that. And what do they mean? We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. One of those great times where yes actually means no. No, what's happening here in verse 17 is the Lord is actually giving an invitation through his servant to the various birds of uh, the sky, these carrion creatures, to come. And it's no longer in the realm of possibility. This isn't a conversation of what's possible. This is not a conversation of what might be. This is God declaring, this is certain and this will come to pass. This is what will be. I find that to be a comforting thing to think about as we've spent as a church 12 hours seeking God's presence for what we might not know will be. We prayed for His protection, and we know He's going to protect us. We just don't know how. We've prayed for His blessing. We know He will, but we don't know how. We've prayed for his care, and we know that he will, but we don't know how. Friends, don't miss the fact that we started praying for God's protection and had our first funeral in how many years? Five? Six? Don't miss that. We start praying, and God does things. We just don't know what. And so in a time of uncertainty, and a season of uncertainty, in prayers of uncertainty, here in verse 17, we have something certain that's going to follow. 
something certain. And it's an invitation. It's gross. It's disgusting. Of course, I would preach this. A day of fasting, preach on a feast. Of course, I would. Not the kind of feast that we wish to partake in, though. It's an invitation for these birds, these carrion birds, to come and to consume the remnants, the leftovers of a battlefield. And in fact, actually, we uh, have this documented out throughout history where that was one of the ways that you could actually see when uh, opposing armies were encroaching upon your territory is that when the large army traveled, the birds followed. You could actually see, oh no, something bad is coming. Here it's an invitation for God's victory to be displayed. And interestingly, who is His victory going to be displayed on? He gives a very full explanation. This destruction of God, this victory of God, this judgment of God will be administered on all kinds of people. No one is big enough, great enough, strong enough, or mighty enough in order to avoid it. Come gather for the great supper of God while Christ and His church feast inside at the wedding reception. The birds feast outside on the bodies of His enemies. Kings, captains, mighty men, horses and riders, men, all men, slave and free, small and great. I love it. It's an invitation to be a a participant in the victory of God. It's an invitation to be uh, a participant in the, the good that God is doing, that the Lord will conquer, the Lord does already, and in fact, even now, already reigns. But sometimes that's hard to see. In fact, actually, I think even in the text, if you were to kind of follow it the way that it would kind of play out as a movie, if you're thinking in your head, this invitation would have felt, in some sense, a little bit preemptive. I mean, if you were to look back through the book, there have been victories so far for the good guys, so to speak, but the major players aren't gone yet. All of the big villains, all the big bads are still around in the book. All of the ones that you would be afraid of are still there. All of the things that are scary, all the things that can hurt you, all the things that can destroy you, all of them are still in play at this point. And so you would think if you were just kind of reading start to finish, perhaps maybe if you didn't know who God was, you would think this is a a preemptive invitation. Really? God, you're going to win? I mean, you're going to win? I mean, really, from chapter 3 on, it hasn't really looked like you're winning sometimes. I mean, you made Adam and Eve in your image. They're perfect, and yet they fell. They didn't have a sin nature. Satan got them. And everything we watched really through the rest of the Old Testament was a hot mess. Every time your people thought they had it together, they did something dumb. They sinned against you. New Testament happens, and Jesus steps inside time and space. The Son steps inside time and space and uh, ends up giving up his life, dying in a very mysterious and wonderful and powerful thing. And then the church continues to be a mess. Really? You're going to win? 
And then verse 19, actually, I think probably if you you actually saw it, would be fearsome and terrible to behold. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And really what you have here is the description of the two parties. Again, somehow we've kind of like a dream jumped from the wedding out to the battlefield. You can kind of picture it on one side. You have arrayed the enemies of God, and on the other side, you have the Lord Himself. And it's intriguing to list specifically kind of who's on the one side. It's the beast, and we've seen this character throughout the book. He's one of the great villains, he's a liar. He's been a liar all the way through. In fact, he's been so successful at his evil because he's lied and pretended to be divine and everybody's believed him. They've believed him. They've thought, oh, oh, he must be the good guy. And so they've followed him, willingly followed him. In fact, even that's where you get the mark. They get marked thinking he is one of the good guys. He's not just done that, but he's had a false prophet that's been laboring beside him. The two big bads in this underneath the devil himself. The false prophet uh, proclaiming to making kind of legitimize the, the labors of the beast. To make the bad guy look like the good guy. It's one of the things perhaps the early cartoons of my childhood didn't do a very good job of. If the villains all looked like the cartoon villains of my childhood, nobody would follow them. It would be obvious. It would be too easy if if they showed up and they only wore mean and ugly clothes and they walked in the scene and you're like, oh, there's the bad guy. I don't want to be that one. That's the exact opposite of what's happened here. The beast looks like the good guy and the false prophet has been helping him appear that way and sound that way and look that way and feel that way. until it's too late. Until it's too late and these people who have been deceived and who have been led astray now find themselves on the battlefield. The beast leading the way. The kings of the earth, their nations arrayed behind him. The armies of all of those that are against God spread out on the battlefield. And you think this would be probably, again, one of those horrible and scary things that you'd never be able to unsee. Uh, so many men and women, boys and girls, it would have had to have looked like you know, just uh, uh, the ocean moving on the hills. Again, this would be the point where you're like, seriously, God, are you sure you're going to win? Have you seen the size of that army? The billions and billions and billions of people that are there. Until the other side. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I love the, the kind of graphic picture you get to see. He has his army with him. Obviously, they don't really fight much, obviously. <laughs> They're all dressed in white. That's maybe perhaps not the best thing to wear on the battlefield. It's probably not going to stay white very long. 
arrayed in brilliant and beautiful white with the white horse on the front and the Lord of life clothed in blood with the sword which is the word of God. And I love that even here at the end, here at the end of time, at the end of this story, that conflict that began in Genesis 3 has carried all the way through. I find that incredibly comforting, maybe a little tiresome, because I find it comforting that to know that the battle that we've been fighting together as a church and the difficulty that we've been wrestling through for months or years or whatever else it is, and the difficulty that at some point will come in the future, it's not unexpected. It's not weird. It doesn't mean we did something wrong. It doesn't mean that we've sinned and we're being judged necessarily. It doesn't mean any of those things. Because the reality is the world in which we live in currently has two armies that are always at odds. The enemies of God and the army of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And while we like to pretend that those two things are so obviously and easily discernible, it's really not the case. I mean, it is if you can see hearts. But if you can't see a heart, sometimes it's hard to tell. That's actually been what the beast has been most successful at this far in the book. I find it comforting because it, it, it lets us know, friends, that this month of fasting and prayer, we've been joining in and participating in a battle that's been running for thousands of years and will continue to run until the end of time. This is day zero, right? The last day, this is it. Revelation 19 into Revelation 20, the last day time exists as we know it. Now, I might just, at this point, gently kind of poke at some of us. Some of us kind of forget that we're in warfare, don't we? I think that's been perhaps one of the most sweet gifts that this season has been for us as a church, to remind us that we're not just a suburban church in a really affluent part of a really affluent country that's all about trying to figure out how to do our ministries better and minister to our people and get our programs or whatever, right? No. We're a church that's at war. Every day when you walk out of here, you walk in a battlefield. There's There's mines everywhere. There's munitions going off everywhere. There are people being spiritually destroyed everywhere. And we walk around sometimes with just kind of our eyes and little blinders going, I don't know what's happening. I'll think about it on Sunday. And then we wonder why it doesn't go well for us. This battle has been going. It is going now. It will continue until the last day. The interesting thing, though, is that we find out in the next two verses exactly how it ends. And I love how it does again, much like the way our dreams are when we uh, dream in the 
you know, in our bed or whatever, where it, it seems like we just jump from one thing to the other and it doesn't always make sense or even explain exactly how everything happens. In verse 19, you have the two, bat, uh, two uh, combatants, the two enemy armies on opposite sides, laid out for combat, laid out for warfare. And then verse 20, it just jumps ahead. And what happened? Well, we won. That's it. It's over. The beast was captured. That's literally the next clause. I love that. It's just like, poof, it's just done. The beast is captured. With the beast, the false prophet was captured. Immediately, they're thrown alive into the lake of fire. They're thrown alive into the judgment of God. And then verse 21 the army itself, which continues, the, you think about this is exactly how combat is supposed to be conducted. They capture the officers, they kill the officers, and then you have a, uh, uh, an enemy combatant force that's been decapitated from its leadership. And so what happens? The Lord himself, not the armies of God, I love this, it's not even the people of God. It's, it's not the beautifully arrayed in white linen armies of God that show up. It's Jesus himself, the second person in the Trinity, the very son, the word of God, takes his sword and just cleans the battlefield. This is one of those beautiful moments in, in Scripture where it's so understated and so fast that it, it kind of blows our mind. It's one of my favorites in Genesis 1 where it's describing it. It says, and God made, you know, and the stars. I love that. You know, the more that we have these telescopes out, the more that we see that we're not talking anymore about billions of stars. They're now talking about billions of galaxies with each one having billions of stars. And it's just a little addition, and the stars. Verse 21, and the rest were slain. I love that. Oh, yeah. yeah, the beast, he's captured, he's gone. The false prophets, he's captured, he's gone. And, and the rest are gone. The entirety of the enemies of God are slain by the sword that comes from him who is seated on the horse. And oh yeah, that invitation that was issued at the beginning of the section is now fulfilled. And the birds that have been circling, waiting for their feast, now engage. All right, weird passage for an end of season of prayer and fasting. Fair enough. I'm not mad at it. Why, though? Well, obviously, to challenge us to think about the warfare that's taking place in front of us. Obviously, to, to contemplate the certainty of the victory of God. But really, to build to that final point I love that this is a, a victory that we really get to see take place. It's one of the most, not one of the most, it is the single most comprehensive victory in the entirety of the scriptures, really until the next chapter. The entirety of the enemies of God, excepting Satan himself, are destroyed in two verses, really in two clauses. And I love the fact that the, it highlights who does it. Well, it's the Lord himself. It's the Lord himself who fights for his people. It's the second person of the Trinity. It's the Son of God who rises and defends his people. Brothers and sisters, whether we like it or not, we are still combatants. We are still living in the field of combat 
And unfortunately, the devil does not fight fair. It extends to our homes. It extends to our workplaces. It extends to our families, our friends. It extends, sadly, even into our heads and our hearts. And whether or not you like it or want to join in doesn't really matter. You are a participant in the great and cosmic combat between the forces of evil and the children of God. My encouragement and inversely challenge is this. God wins. You realize that's really been the point of this whole entire endeavor. Is that God wins. The challenge is that we begin to labor to align our minds and align our hearts with His. You know what? His victory doesn't look exactly like what I would want. Be honest, His victory would not have looked like a funeral in the middle of this season. Not to me, at least. But Isaiah 55, His ways are higher than mine. They're better than mine. English grammar's terrible. They're they're gooder than mine. The challenge for us is this going forward, perhaps, is that acknowledging now that we are more and more these combatants that we've forgotten to be, perhaps, and that God wins in totality. Even now, He's already winning. He hasn't ever stopped winning. It's outside of time and space, so just because this is happening in the timeline doesn't mean he is. But maybe we might renew our commitment to asking for him to share that victory with us. That maybe we might renew our commitment to asking for his power. Brandon and I have been up front about this. I've been saying this for years. Please pray for our preaching Nobody wants it to be better more than Brandon and I. I promise. If you sit through what you think is a dud of a sermon, I guarantee you we enjoyed it less than you did. I promise. Pray for God's power. Pray for His power in our preaching. Pray for His power in our prayers as a body. Pray for His power in the shepherding from the elders. Pray for His wisdom and His power in our session meetings. Pray for His power and His gentleness and kindness for our deacons. Pray for His power in our care for one another. Pray for His power for our women's ministry and for our men's ministry. Pray for His power in our nursery and in our Sunday school. Pray for His power. Because I love it, verses 17 through 21, most comprehensive victory in all the scriptures, really. And the only person that fights is Jesus. He's the only one. Let's pray together that the Lord would indeed share his power with us.